listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Philippians chapter 4 verses 1 to 9 And So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whenever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. This is God's word. Um, well, the, the passage we've just read. Uh, comes towards the end of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And the church in Philippi was a church that Paul knew well. Uh, He himself had planted the church. It was a church that had sacrificially partnered with him in his ministry. It was a church that Paul really loved. And so there's a warmth that comes through in the letter. You'd see that if you were to go away and read it. In fact, you see it even in verse 1 there. You see this warmth of Paul towards the church in Philippi that comes through. Uh, But it wasn't a church that was without its problems. Uh, We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that even though this church was in the wealthy Roman province of Philippi, the church itself was facing financial difficulty. We know from Philippians, from the letter itself, that there were people in Philippi, in the city, who were opposing the church and the church's teaching. And there was some disunity in the church as well. In chapter 4, the passage that we just read, Paul wants to focus on several aspects of the Christian life that would have been particularly relevant and important for the Philippians. Um, But as we'll see, I hope this afternoon, these are things that are incredibly relevant and important for us too. So we're going to look at three things that Paul wants these Philippian Christians to know and to experience. He wants them to know and experience a unity, a unity that affects us all, 
Secondly, a joy that transcends our circumstances. And thirdly, a frame of mind that brings peace. So first of all, a unity that affects us all. Um, Disunity was one of the problems that faced the Philippian church. There was friction within the church community. And in the beginning of chapter 2, if you've got a Bible open with you and you can glance back at that, you'll see there that Paul had encouraged everyone in the church to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but instead to count others more significant than themselves, to be humble, uh, not to look out just for their own interests, but also to the interests of others. Chapter 2, verse 14, uh, Paul had warned them not to have a spirit of grumbling or questioning. Uh, These are things that compound disunity. But now at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul addresses a very specific area of disunity in this disagreement between two women in the church, Yodia and Syntyche. So we read in verse 2 in our passage, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, um, unity is something that's mentioned fairly regularly in churches. If you've been around church for a little while, you've probably heard it talked about We might recognise something of its importance. We might recognise that it's a bad thing for a church to be divided. But it's important that we understand what kind of unity Paul is contending for here. So sometimes we can think of unity uh, simply as the absence of any obvious or any vocal disagreements. Unity, we think, in the church is merely tolerating one another. And it certainly is that at times. But Paul is saying here that it is more than that. Look at the language he uses in verse 2. He says, I I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Uh, Whatever we make of that phrase, in the Lord, we'll come on to it in a moment, it's clear that Paul has something more than merely tolerating one another in mind when he writes this. It's clear that the unity Paul is contending for is more than just the absence of any obvious disagreement. So look down at what he says in verse 3. He says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, this isn't an easy verse to translate and to interpret. Um, That's why you've probably, if you've got a Bible open in front of you, you've probably got a footnote here in your Bible. Uh, But I think the way that we ought to interpret it is to take it as Paul not referring to one particular person who he names true companion, this kind of uh, vague, ambiguous person, uh, or whatever your footnote might say, We should take it, I think, as Paul calling on anyone in the church who is a true companion of his in the gospel, that is a partner of his in the gospel, and he's calling on them to help these women in their disagreements. He's saying, please, any of you loyal friends of mine, help these women overcome their disagreement and to agree with each other in the Lord. Uh, In any case, however we might interpret the person Paul is speaking about there, the thing that we need to note is the fact that he is calling on people in the church to help. He doesn't simply write, Euodia, Syntyche, just 
come on, sweep your differences under the carpet and be done with it. Uh, and he doesn't write, friends, please, just will you, please hush Euodia and Syntyche up and stop them causing such a stir. But he urges people in the church to help them agree in the Lord. So in Paul's mind, Christian unity is more than just keeping quiet about things and not causing a fuss. It's more than just tolerating each other. It involves getting to the heart of our disagreements. And so it means asking difficult questions. It means asking difficult questions of yourself. If you find yourself upset with so-and-so in the church, why? Why are you upset with them? If you disagree with somebody and a decision that's been made, why is that? Don't just assume that your way of looking at the situation is the right way of looking at it. Uh, don't, also, don't just let it eat away at you so that you become bitter about it. But speak to the person. Speak to the officers of the church who have made a decision. Get to the bottom of the disagreements. For Paul, it's important that these two women do that. And it's important that the wider church helps them for two reasons. Uh, one reason is that these women were clearly very prominent women in the church. Uh, that's not to say that they were simply the most vocal, um, that they were the ones who shouted the loudest in church meetings and church vision meetings, um, but they were great workers in the church. And they were there at the centre of the church's community and the church's ministry in a very good way. Paul refers to them in verse 3 as women who have laboured with him in the gospel. And so if there's a disagreement, if there are unresolved differences between these two key people in the church, then the effects of that would be felt throughout the whole church community. Do you know, there's an extra responsibility for unity and agreement in the Lord that rests on your shoulders if you hold a position of authority in the church. If you're heavily involved in the life and community of the church. And too often uh, in churches there are unresolved disagreements among those people, among people who should be setting an example in Christian unity. Unity or disunity affects us all. And we should all be engaged in striving for agreement in the Lord. Do you know that's important for us here at Trinity? There's a new church, there's a new church that's looking to uh, look into the future. We're wondering um, what kind of church we ought to be, what we ought to prioritise. Well, here is something that should be very near the top of our priorities as we think about these things. Unity. Unity amongst ourselves. Being able to deal with disagreements rightly and properly. But unity is important in Paul's mind for a second reason. And it's found in that little phrase in verse 2. Agree with each other in the Lord. Now when Paul uses this phrase, which he does a lot. We've already seen that, haven't we? If you've been here as we've been going through Ephesians. Um, he's often referring to the fact that a Christian is united to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when we come to faith in Christ, we are brought into a union with Christ. Uh, that is to say that the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ, joins us in a, a close relationship, a close bond to him. 
And that's why elsewhere, Paul uh, says that marriage reflects Christ's relationship with his church. In a marriage, a husband and a wife are joined together. And in a similar way, the church is joined to Christ. We are one with Christ. It's why Paul could speak elsewhere of the church being the body of Christ. Because we are joined to the head, who is Christ. We're united to him. And so when Paul uses this phrase here as he urges Euodia and Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord, he is highlighting that it is not at all fitting for members of Christ's church to be divided. We are one with Christ. And that oneness ought to be reflected in our unity with one another. Now, uh, we need to move on from this point. Uh, But one brief reflection before we do. I wonder how this pandemic has affected our unity as Christians, as churches. As we've been separated from one another at times, as we've been at times unable to meet together, to see one another more regularly. I wonder whether there's a danger that our unity as Christians, as a church, isn't being strengthened as Paul wants it to be here. So what can we do about that? How can we make sure that our unity is strengthened? Well, let me just suggest two key things that we can do. We can spend time together. And we can spend time together worshipping God. So let's be hospitable to one another. Let's invite one another around our homes or to the park or out for a coffee or a meal. Let's do that. And let's continue to prioritise worshipping God together on Sundays. Do you know, it's been a great encouragement to me over the six months that we've been meeting together that many of you have clearly made it a priority to be here on Sundays to worship God together with his people. Do you know, this is absolutely essential to living a healthy Christian life. It's essential to unity in the life of the church too. We need to be worshipping God together. And so let me encourage you, if there are things that you need to put in place in order to prioritise worshipping God with the rest of the church on Sundays, then put those things in place. Make the changes to your schedule that you need to make. Say no to the things that you need to say no to. And let church be the reason that you miss everything else rather than vice versa. And so that's the first thing that Paul wants the church to experience. He wants them to experience a unity that affects us all. Secondly, he wants the church to know a joy that transcends all circumstances. A joy that transcends circumstances. And we see this in verses 4 to 7. Paul writes there in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, I wonder if you realise what Paul is doing there. He is commanding the Philippians to be joyful. Um, That's a bold thing to do. When Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always, he is saying that they ought to rejoice in the Lord in all circumstances, in every situation they find themselves in. Now, this isn't something that Paul mentions glibly. 
or without being considerate to the difficulties that the Philippians had. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul had said that he himself rejoices, even though Christ is being preached by some with false, false motives, and even though he was in prison. Paul was writing this letter from prison, and he's still saying that he rejoices in the Lord. See, Paul is instructing the Philippians to rejoice no matter what their circumstances are, just as he rejoices no matter what his circumstances are. And it might well be one of the things that he wants the Philippians to emulate when he mentions in verse 9 uh, of the passage we've read. And this isn't the only command that Paul gives to the Philippians here. In verse 4, he commands them to rejoice. And then in verse 5, he instructs them to let their gentleness or their reasonableness, their forbearance, be known to everyone. He wants them to bear with their circumstances that they find themselves in. He wants them to be known for forbearance. He wants them to be known for their contentment, even in testing times. In verse 6, he commands them not to be anxious about anything, but instead to make known their requests to God along with the reasons that they have to be thankful to him by prayer. And so do you see... How we can sum these things up. Joy, patience, a life free from worry. Paul is talking about a life of fulfillment here. He's talking about a life of deep joy, a life of deep contentment. And he's saying that it is possible to experience this no matter what your circumstances are. And so at that point, the question that all of us want to ask is, well, how? <laughs> how do we experience this? How do we get it? Do you know, in one sense, all of human history is the attempt to answer that question. Men and women throughout the ages have pursued a happiness and a satisfaction that cannot be taken away from them. And one common solution that has kept coming up throughout history is to suggest that The way to know this life of contentment, the way to know this life of deep joy, is not to become too attached to anything. So to things that can be taken away from us. Um, If you're going to be consistently joyful and content, then what you need, according to this strategy, is not to love anything. Because it is true, isn't it, that what causes us the most sorrow are the things or the people we love being taken away from us. And so, on the surface, it seems that this could be an effective strategy. If you don't want to be left heartbroken and sorrowful, then don't give your heart to anything. Don't get your hopes up, and you won't be disappointed. But when you probe that as a solution, that the way to get this joy and contentment is not to love anyone or anything too much, so that if they're taken away from you, then your joy and contentment is still there. Well, if you probe it, it doesn't really stand up. Do you know, think about it. Can we really say that the pain that we have felt during the pandemic is not so much that parents have been separated from children or grandparents from grandchildren? It's not so much that friends haven't been able to see one another. The parents uh, love their children too much that children love their parents too much, that grandparents love their grandchildren too much, that friends love one another too much. 
Are we really going to suggest that if only we could be more detached from one another, more detached from the things we love, then we would know this joy and contentment that remains. Are we really going to say to the person who grieves the loss of their spouse, their parent, their friend, that their problem is that they loved that person when they should have stayed at arm's length? That's ridiculous, isn't it? There's something within us that tells us it is right for us to love. It is natural for us to love. We have to love. There's something within us that says it's wrong to simply detach ourselves from everything. There's something within us that rightly celebrates a marriage at a wedding or an anniversary. And the warmth that we feel when our our child or grandchild smiles at us or hugs us is not something bad that we need to shun but it's something good to embrace and so if it isn't possible then if this solution isn't possible if it isn't possible for us simply to seal ourselves off from things that we might otherwise love so that we can never be left bereft or disappointed then what is the solution how can we know this joy and contentment that transcends all circumstances that can't be taken away from us that remains even when we experience heartache and disappointment. Well, Paul writes two brief clauses in these verses that are incredibly important for answering that question. The first is in verse 4. He tells the Philippians in verse 4, not only to rejoice in all circumstances, but to rejoice in the Lord in all circumstances. Paul is telling them to find their joy supremely in the Lord, supremely in God himself and in their relationship with him. He is telling them that the solution is not to love other things less, but to love God more than anything else. Now, do you see the difference there? Our problem Your problem, my problem, is not that we love the wrong things. Our problem is that we love things in the wrong order. The person who loves God supremely loves what cannot be taken away from them. And so even when other things they love are taken away, relationships, health, health, um, jobs and what they love more than anything else god himself still remains and so their ultimate joy remains and their ultimate contentment remains now, paul related these things to himself back in chapter 3 he wrote there in verse 8 i consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing christ jesus my lord For whose sake I have lost all things. In verse 10 in chapter 3. Where it's almost as though Paul is answering the question. Paul what do you want more than anything else in this life? He writes. I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
You see, because knowing and loving God was Paul's ultimate priority in life, he knew a joy and a contentment that stayed with him even when he suffered. If you want to know the same joy and contentment, then your ultimate priority needs to be the same. Prioritise knowing and loving God above all else, even above happiness itself. One theologian once wrote, Seek happiness and you won't find it, but seek God and you'll find happiness thrown in. There's something else in these verses that's so important in helping us answer, answer this question. How can we know this joy and this contentment that transcends all circumstances? Well, firstly, Paul is saying we need to rejoice in God above all else. And we don't need to avoid loving other things, but we do need to love God above all other things. But secondly, look at what he says in verse 5. He says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, we need to take note of what Paul says at the end of that verse. He says, the Lord is at hand, or the Lord is near. Uh, he's referring to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying his return is near. And that little phrase, it's the reason for what Paul has written before it, and it's the reason for what comes after it. So how can the Philippians rejoice in all circumstances? How can they be known for being patient and gentle in all circumstances? How can they avoid being anxious and worrying in all circumstances? It's by remembering that the day on which the Lord will return is near. It's not far off. It's at hand. You know, it may have been that Paul thought Jesus would return in his lifetime. He certainly hadn't ruled it out. But neither had he ruled out that it would be after his lifetime. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul allows for both scenarios. He accounts for both those who are alive when the Lord returns and those who have fallen asleep before he returns. But either way for Paul, whether the Lord was to return in his lifetime or after he had died, he felt that he could speak of the Lord's return as being near, at hand. And you know, it's the same for us. What is 70, 80, 90 years in light of eternity. What is 2,000 years even in light of eternity? So for us too, the Lord's return is near, it's at hand. But why does this mean that the Philippians can rejoice in all circumstances, be joyful and contend in all circumstances? It's because it, it manages their expectations. As they reflect on the nearness of the Lord's return... It reminds them that it isn't until that day that every wrong will be put right. It isn't until that day that we will all be free from sorrow and from frustration. And so they don't have unrealistic expectations of this life. They're not living as though they expect to be sorrow-free and frustration-free now. And yet at the same time, it reminds them that on that day, they will be. Every wrong will be put right. They will be free from sorrow and from frustration. And so they don't have unrealistic expectations of this present life. And they have great hope in the life to come. 
Joy and contentment that does not depend on our circumstances is possible in this life. Because in the Lord, our ultimate joy cannot be taken away from us. And because the promise that the joy and contentment we know now in part, we will one day know in full when the Lord returns. And so friends, we can rejoice in every circumstance. We can be known for our gentleness, our reasonableness, our forbearance in adversity. We can be free from worry. We can know the peace of God, even when, humanly speaking, we should know no peace. We haven't got time to go into this, but how do we know that we've really grasped hold of this? How do we know that we believe this? We do what Paul says in verse 7. We pray. Prayer is the evidence that we value God above everything else. And that we are looking to him for our joy and our contentment. So a unity that affects us all, a joy that transcends circumstances. Thirdly, finally, very briefly, a frame of mind that brings peace. In verse 8, Paul instructs the Philippians in how to think. He gives a list of virtues, whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. It's not an exhaustive list of virtuous things. He summarizes it with what he says at the end of that. He says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. See, he wants the Philippians to have the right frame of mind, to think in the right way. He connects their thinking with their doing. In verse 9, he tells them to practice the things that they observed in Paul's life and conduct. Do you know, all all the way through Philippians, again, if you were to go and read it, you'd see Paul connecting right thinking with right doing. Uh, In fact, at the beginning of this passage, his plea to Euodia and Syntyche to to, uh, agree in the Lord is a plea to think the same, to have the same frame of mind. He wants their thinking to be shaped by his teaching, to be shaped by the truths of the gospel. Back in chapter 2, we haven't read it, But back in chapter 2, Paul used another word for think. It's the same word that he uses at the beginning of chapter 4. It's a word that appears in this letter more than any other of his letters. He tells the Philippians to be like-minded, to think the same. Uh, He uses the same word in chapter 2, verse 5, where he writes, Your attitudes should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Think on these things, Paul says in chapter 4. Have this frame of mind, this same frame of mind that Christ Jesus had. How do we get this frame of mind? How do we think this way? Well, after Paul had encouraged the Philippians to have that same frame of mind as Christ Jesus back in chapter 2, he gave this incredible description of how Christ humbled himself. How he endured the most humiliating and hardest of deaths. How do we learn to think rightly as Christians? We need to reflect on who the Lord Jesus is. And we need to reflect that on the fact that he is the eternal son of God who took on our human nature. We need to reflect on what he came to do, he came to die in our place. And we reflect on why he came to do it. He came because of God's great love for the world. 
And it's as we think about him, it's as we think about all that he has done, it's then that we learn to think rightly about everything else. As we learn to think rightly in that way, Paul writes at the end of verse 9, that the God of peace will be with us. As we learn to think rightly, as we adopt the Christian frame of mind, we will know peace. And so do you want to know this unity? Do you want to know this joy that transcends our circumstances? This peace that's on offer? Then look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him and value him above all other things. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at, something to be used for his own ends. We thank you that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Lord, we pray that as we reflect on him, on who he is, on all he has done for us and why he has done it, pray that you would help us to think rightly about our lives. You would help us to value and worship you above all other things. And we pray that as we do so, we might know the blessing of unity and joy and peace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the connect page on our website trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.